Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1929 film Man with a Movie Camera. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Barrett, this is the uh, oldest movie in the Sight and Sound Top 10 by a good measure. Um, the The next oldest is Citizen Kane in 1941. So this is a full 12 years uh, before that. So what's interesting is over time, I feel like some of the much older movies on the sight and sound list have started to drift down. Uh, but this one remains in the, uh, remains in the top 10. Uh, what is your history with this film? Had you seen this before? No, I hadn't. Uh, it's one of those films that, uh, you know, you teach film history and it comes up all the time. And I, for some reason, it was just one of those I'd never got around to watching. So this is my first time. Um, I'm actually glad to hear that because I want to I want to ask some questions. And since this is a pretty recent experience, you probably have answers. Um, what expectations did you have going into this film? Well, that's a good question. Um, I had seen enough stills from the film that I knew that it was going they were going to have some surprising special effects for 1929. So I had that expectation. Um, I was somewhat familiar with one genre I thought the film might fit into, which is the City Symphony, which is something we can talk about later as well. Um, so I expected lots of scenes of city life. Um, so those were two expectations. Those those were both met, but then the things that I did not expect was I did not expect the, the montage editing. I did not, I mean, there are a lot of things I didn't expect, especially the self-consciousness of the film the degree to which it's a film about making a film that completely surprised me a hundred percent. Cause I thought I knew what this movie was going to be before when you said the name, it's like, okay, I'm aware of this movie. I haven't seen it. Um, I thought it was going to be, uh, and it is this following a cameraman around filming, but in some ways I thought this movie was, was older than it was. I was surprised how new it was in some ways. I was thinking like, because the, even the title, man with a movie camera sounds like the third movie you would make you know <laughs> like like let's follow you know um so i was i was amazed to think like this is only the fourth oldest movie we've watched on this podcast nosferatu's older sunrise is older passion of joan of arc is older so this was this was later on in the filmmaking process um and i was blown away how uh intentionally revolutionary and experimental this was i knew it was going to be experimental and like he was going to be doing some things that were novel at the time i didn't realize it had at its core some pretty revolutionary ideas about what film is and what, what it what it should be and what it shouldn't be um and i found that actually really exciting yeah i'm glad you used the word revolutionary because um veritov was a supporter of the revolution of the the russian revolution um, and in fact, he had gotten his start in earlier in the 20s. He did a series of films called, uh, which he called the Kino Pravda series, that is Film Truth. He did about 23 of these 20 minute newsreels over uh, about a three year period. And a lot of that kind of laid the foundation for what he was doing here. They, the, he, he tended to focus on three different topics in each of those, in each of those films. Um, he's also part of the school of what's, uh, what, what's someone's called Soviet Montage. Uh, along with Ivanstein and and Pudovkin. Um, but he was so so this film has a lot of montage. It, there's over 1700 shots uh, in you know in in 69 minutes or whatever. Um, and the and but each of the each of the um, 
adherents to Soviet montage had different theories about what they were trying to do with montage. So Kudovkin said he was trying to build, he, he thought of his individual shots as, as bricks and he was trying to build a sequence. Uh, and Eisenstein was much more interested in, in, in a clash. He wanted to bring two very different images, juxtapose them and then to create a concept in the viewer's mind. Whereas for um, uh, Fertov, it's much more what he calls the kino eye, the, the film eye. And, we can, and, and there are ways in which, well, quite explicitly, right, in this film, he continually makes a connection between the camera lens and, and the human eye. So he, a couple of his key words are he talks about capturing life as it is, and he also talks about capturing life caught unawares. But he also talks about the, um, uh, the power of the, of the cinema eye to create. So in one of his manifestos, he says, uh, I, I am the builder. I've placed you in an extraordinary room, which does not exist even now until I created it. And in fact, if you think about Man of the Movie Camera, I talked about it being City Symphony earlier. He actually is filming in three or four different cities, depending on which your source is. So he is actually creating the city that you're looking at. So there's a, there's a lot going on there with him and uh, film technique. Yeah, I mean, another another line that I found as I was reading uh, about kind of Kino Pravda was that the idea was fragments of actuality, which when organized together, have a deeper truth than can be seen with the naked eye. So, mm -hmm. so there, you know, he's doing some things with uh, creating associations between not completely unrelated things, but things that we might not think of as connected. Um, and then drawing them together to to sort of point to the similarities between them and to you know to raise questions or or, or raise points. Um, one of the questions that I had now, I actually went through a journey as I as I'm realizing this, I'm reading through my notes uh, for this episode, and I went through a journey because I there's stuff I wrote at the beginning of this that it's like I don't even know if I agree with what what I wrote by the time I got to the end of it. But so here's a question that that I had, and I keep um, struggling with this. This film is often considered uh, to be in the conversation as the greatest documentary of all time. And I found myself saying, it's one of the greatest films of all time. I am happy to say that. And I'm thinking, is this a documentary? And in some ways, obviously it is. I mean, it, he is documenting. I mean, his whole theory about about filming is you know, that you don't stage it, that you don't do that. I mean, there's a couple things that are staged here, but, but by and large, I mean, that whole life on life caught unawares or life as it is at the same time, this, this movie, I feel like calling it a documentary short changes it because <laughs> it's, you know, it is a, it's a non-narrative art film at the same time, which is also a doc. But if I showed this to somebody and say, here, here's a great documentary. I feel like I wouldn't be setting the person up for what they were actually about to watch. Okay, I think I think as often when these questions you pose, I think it's often the case when you pose these questions, Sam, that I'm going to kind of answer it both ways. Well, because it is, yeah, that's my yeah, answer. Yeah, well. but, but but I think thinking about that is interesting because I think there is one view of documentary, and and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but there's one view of documentary that you might call naive documentary. You you, you know you, that is okay, yeah. It, it what a documentary is supposed to do. Is supposed to show you how things, how they are, without necessarily editorializing or commenting, right? Now, that's probably impossible in film because the minute you choose to show something, you're choosing not to show something else. And the minute you choose to make a film, you're putting things in relation to each other. 
So then the other view of documentary filmmaking would be what you might call the auteur theory of documentary filmmaking. And even somebody like Frederick Wiseman, famous for, you know, four hour documentaries with no commentary whatsoever. He's just letting the camera roll. Well, even that's an auteur method because he's still choosing how long is it going to roll? What are you what are you going to going to show? However, I, I do think that when people think of documentary, they do tend to think much more towards reality. This is how it is. You're not manipulating things. And so I think what's happening with Veritoff is, and there's a deep irony here because he opposed uh, approaches to film that he thought were artificial. He was he was against narrative. Uh, he felt the way he was doing film was truer to Marxist ideology. So there's a sense in which he thought he was doing documentary filmmaking the way a good Marxist ought, ought, ought to do it. But it's really, it's full of social commentary. Um, so, yeah, I think if you, if, you, if you were to say, tell someone it's a documentary, what you might want to convey is it's not a narrative film. Uh, but, yeah, it's much closer to, to an art film, a, a non-narrative art film for sure. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, so, it's also so much an essay about not just even about how films are made, but he's so aggressively thinking about how films should be made. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, so I was trying, I was trying to think of anything that I thought was similar to this. And the only thing I could think of, and I don't know if this is a good film or not, but I, I remember seeing in the late nineties, uh, it's is a, a 1982 film, uh, Godfrey Reggio's Koyanastasi, where it's like all of this, like, it, that's like, life city it's like in the sped up and slowed down and it's like that seems like the inheritor of something like this although i don't think that feels like it has some of the um uh <laughs> this is how film should be feel to it you know I, I think um i don't know as much about that movie but but that was the closest thing i could think of to like have i seen anything like this before yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up. That was, that's also a film I know by reputation, which I have not seen. But yes, uh, that is actually one of the connections I would make that that what Vertov is doing here is very much reflected by Reggio's film. Although I think Vertov has a much clearer political uh, intention. Yeah. So, so I, speaking of of Vertov's intention, I love the opening credits to this movie because <laughs> Vertov, before you see a frame of filmed footage. He is said he is going to tell you what this movie is. So, so it, he kind of shifted my my expectations before it even started. So I just want to read what he says here because I think this is fascinating. So he says, uh, "For the attention of the spectator, this film presents an experiment in the cinematic transmission of visual of visible phenomena without the aid of intertitles, without the aid of script, without the aid of theater." This experimental work aims to create a truly international, absolute language of cinema based on its complete separation from the language of theater and literature. When I when I read that, I thought, okay, for one thing, Vertov is basically calling his shot. He's like, here's what this is, um, and I want you to think about what I'm saying here. I don't want you to miss my point. Because you could, if he doesn't say that, you could say, well, there's lots of things that this movie's about, but he is telling you, yeah, it's about those things, but this is really what I'm interested in. Um, and and I'm gonna try to make a movie the way I think a movie should be made. And I I, I got so excited when I read that. Well, I mean, I yes, and and I and I there's a couple things that I I thought about when I read that. One was um, 
Charlie Chaplin's resistance to moving to sound because the notion that the silent film was universal or international uh, in its in its appeal, uh, even if you have intertitles, you're still are, are appealing through sight. Uh, and then secondly, of course, the, the idea we I just mentioned a few minutes ago, the auteur theory, right? The notion of a film language and the idea that you write with film. And what Vertov is trying to do is to define what is it that is unique about the way cinema works? That's why he would, I mean, he's trying to do cinema without theater. Without, so that's why he, one of the reasons he rejects plot. Uh, he's trying to do cinema without literature. That's why he rejects the, the intertitles. And he felt that one of the problems with narrative, with fiction, was that you would just, and this, is the, this is why he thinks he's, trying, he's being revolutionary, is that with fiction, you're just reproducing uh, stereotypes, character types, cliched plots, et cetera, et cetera. He's really trying to make a take a break. But the irony is that Veritoff ends up producing a film that is so, for lack of a better word, so artsy that he actually ends up getting in trouble with the authorities. I mean, not not in bad trouble, but they're like, no, no, comrade, you know, this is this is not what what we're looking for. So even though he's trying to serve the revolution. He actually ends up making art that ironically appeals to people like Godard, uh, as you might expect. This is the film that Godard that Godard loves. And and I have to bring Godard in here because um, Godard has that famous statement in uh, it's actually said by a character in, in one of his films. He says, uh, photography is truth and cinema is truth 24 times a second. And I think I, I mean, to me, that seems inspired by by Veritoff in some ways. Yeah, and and I think his he, the the story you just told about Vertov kind of getting into a little bit of trouble with this is really is um pretty common for kind of the revolutionary artist who is um whose ideology tends to be more of an artistic ideology than a political ideology, and they glom on to um a political ideology because they think there's a possibility of art in it and then they find themselves sometimes connected with something where they don't really have a home as much as they think i mean i um i thought of uh a person i thought about a lot with this movie was ezra pound <laughs> as well in terms of like um you know pound thought of writing poetry almost like montage editing with the idea of a luminous detail that you lay two things next to each other and you don't even need to explain i mean that's a very cinematic way to think about poetry yeah. two details next to each other creates a third truth um pound ends up getting drawn into uh mussolini's fascism pound is also like an uh somebody who gets into uh artistic ideologies he, he's somebody he's a very complex complicated problematic figure he's also one of my favorite poets mm -hmm. um which makes always makes poetry difficult for me so i like so i was drawn to vertov in the way that i'm drawn to pound in some ways too because he is both a believer in the revolution and you know in 1929 you're only five years from the death of lenin um, you know, you're you're still pretty early in in Stalin. This is not the Stalin of you know much much later. I mean, Stalin's still a, a, a problematic figure in 1929, but but that that stuff seems a little less clear. The what the Soviet Union's going to be seems a little less uh, clear at this point. Um, yeah, I'm, also, glad, I'm glad you mentioned Lenin because uh, Lenin actually said that cinema was the most important art film. Um, and of course, you know, he may have been thinking about cinema for propagandistic purposes but it's yeah so Veritov was certainly trying to align himself with 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 Leninism um, I do like that connection to pound and imagism because I think there are a lot of ways in which what's going on in those imagistic poems is actually quite quite cinematic and so there's much more of a 
relationship between those and maybe um there may be veritoff with uh the language maybe much more of a connection there but he was more concerned as i said with the way fiction and language mm -hmm. seemed to have to fall in the cliches so absolutely i'm also glad you brought up goddard because i um i when i when i read this statement i thought well we had this we've had an ongoing conversation about like what what does it mean to think about film as an art form and what are things that kind of you can only do in film and and when can you find filmmakers who are doing that or who are questioning that and i thought about a godard movie that has grown in my estimation since we watched it continued to grow where I, it keeps creeping up my list of like this might be one of the greats i the movie contempt has not gotten away from me since we mm -hmm. watched it and i thought about the opening shot of contempt where you get the you see the camera on the dolly so you see yeah. the film you're watching being made which feels very much reflective of vertov here you know that we're watching we're watching the film we're watching be made <laughs> and also the idea when godard does things like does the credits out loud instead of on the screen it's like he is questioning convention of like mm -hmm. we always do this this way is this actually is this just a carryover from something else could we not do this instead could we not and and so i I feel like like this. Um, uh, I feel like a, a contempt and this would be a great double feature in terms of people thinking about what it means to make a movie, but also thinking about what the possibilities of film is. Um, yeah, I, I, I this 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 excites me in the way contempt has continued to excite me since we watched it. That, okay, so that was one of the other things that surprised me about about the film, um, and that is that I, I realized I was a little slow on the uptake, but I realized um, I don't know, was it five ten minutes or so in when you see the cameraman going out to the car to kind of go about his his job. I'm like, oh, well, I thought that it was going to be you no, know, I thought that the camera was always going to be our subjective point of view. I didn't realize that we were going to watch the camera watching the city. So, so the way in which he, the way in which the camera itself, just as the beginning of contempt, you see the camera actually turning towards you, right? In in, the, in this instance, we see the camera as it goes out the city. So I started thinking about the fact: well, there's actually two men with a camera, right? Because you got the guy with the camera, but then you got the person filming the guy with the camera, and then of course you have the projection of this to the audience and so now you're the audience watching the audience watching the cameraman who was just filmed by the cameraman that you were watching so it's it's kind of dizzying in a way when you think about the the layers of um of meta reference that he's that he's building in yeah i mean because i think the, the the time where it jumped out to me is it takes a while so you see the cameraman walk out you see um there there's a shot pretty early in the film where you're seeing these these like i think it's people with it's either horse carts or push carts i think it's push carts and you're watching them and you're like you're underneath them mm -hmm. and you have these there's a couple of moments where you see shots and i remember before he got to it i was like man they had to put the camera there to get this shot and then it 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 um it like jump cuts to a shot where you see the cameraman laying down on the ground as the carts are going over him. And that's when I had this moment of like, Oh, so he's not only going to show us tricks. He's also going to reveal the reality of the tricks. But to your point, whenever you see that you have a doubling of a cameraman. And if we were to see that cameraman, we would need a, we would need a trip. So like, it is this infinite iteration that would go back in order to act. So he's also saying like, you can never actually see everything. Because the thing you're looking through 
mm-hmm. can't be seen because mm-hmm. we, you know, we keep. So yeah, I, my mind was kind of blown by that. I was excited. And I also love, you talked about how this opens in the movie theater. There's also a great image of, um, I think the ascendancy of film as maybe in his mind, the ultimate medium, which is you see all these people go into the theater you see the orchestra get ready. You see the conductor of the orchestra, which normally you would think, well, the conductor's in charge, right? They're going to start things. You know, if you if you've seen the movie Tar, you know, there's this famous line where she says, "You cannot start without me." Like the conductor starts, but in this movie, you see the conductor ready, and everybody looks up at the projectionist because now it is the projectionist who yeah. is in charge because nothing begins until that light hits and 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 it shows, and then you hear the orchestra come up. And I was like, oh, that is a statement about cinema as potentially dominant art form or the ascendancy of cinema. And I was like, that is a that is a great statement without overdoing it. I thought that was great. And and that that also gives me an opening, Sam, to say here here's another film that you could pair this with. Um, and uh, this one will appeal to you as well. And that is Persona, mm-hmm. uh, because just as at the beginning of Persona, Bergman shows you the inner workings of the projector and, and 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 especially the arc lamp, right? And you and you get that at the beginning of this film as well. You see the inside, you see the arc lamp starting to heat up. And so I thought, oh, we're kind of in the world of Persona, which is another film that shows that draws attention to the fact that you are watching a film. So you actually have the film break it break halfway through. Um, you've got direct address to the camera. So there's lots of ways in which I think there's a line you could draw to uh, to, to Bergman as well. Yeah, this must be a thrilling movie for young filmmakers to watch. I mean, I would say to this very day, I think if you were if you were a young aspiring filmmaker and you'd never seen this and you watched this, I think it would cause you to ask some questions and to push at walls, push at the mm-hmm. walls around you of like, well, you could do this actually. You could raise these things. So, you know, so I got to that point when I was seeing this, the, when I was actually watching the photographer, you know, lay on the railroad tracks and all this stuff. And, and there's a great shot of like, when you're seeing people speeding in a car and you realize, oh my gosh, the camera has to be moving that fast too. And then you see a shot of the cameraman on the car and you realize there's actually three cars and right. Um, and I was remember thinking like, should this movie be called men with movie cameras? Like, cause that's really what it is. And then yeah. the, the next thought I had was, you know, it's a shame that he is exteriorizing so much of the process, but the thing he's not showing us is that all of this is edited by someone. And I thought, wow, that's a missed opportunity for him. But of course, Vertov's way smarter than I am. And you get this great moment where the shot freezes <laughs> and you realize like, what's happening? And then we pull out and we realize, of course, everything we're watching is being edited and we watch the person edited and that's Vertov's wife who's who's editing it and you watch her construct the film you're watching as you watch it you go back and see things you've already seen and she's playing with it you also watch her edit things you're gonna see later so like he plays with time in different ways I, I that was a moment where this movie which I already thought was a masterpiece was like wow he's gonna go all the way with this and I was blown away <laughs> Uh, another filmmaker I think of in that connection, of course, is is Orson Welles. Um, Welles was was famous for saying that films were created on the movieola, the uh, editing editing machine. And you could say, well, that's you know that's a part of every filmmaker's craft. You all have to edit your movies, but but for Welles, it was much more the idea that you actually were creating the film through through the editing. And I think the most um, 
the most Soviet montages of Wells's films would, would be Othello. I mean, when you when you watch, before I knew about Soviet montage, when I was watching Othello, I thought, oh, so this is where MTV editing came from. Uh, now I know it come from Soviet montage. But but there's a lot going on in, in, in Wells's films that, that, are, that owe a debt to this kind of editing as, as well. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up like 80s, 90s um, kind of music video aesthetic, because I don't know what the soundtrack was you had for yours. Mine was a was a pretty modern. I think it was made in 2010 or something. A pretty modern soundtrack that they say they used Vertov's notes in terms of what the the what the uh, like tempo of the music and stuff like that should be. But like Trial of jo- or Passion of Joan of Arc, which is the year before this, it feels like this invented the the 80s and the 90s in terms of what what music videos look like. Like like it was. Uh, it's it set so well to the modern music that was that we were that I was listening to with the the version I saw. So, um, so yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. The other thing that I that I love about this, whether intentional or not, and I, and I definitely want to get into this subject more broadly, but I want to think about uh, Elizaveta Zivlova, uh, who is uh, Vertov's wife, who is the editor of this film. She's a, a director and editor in her own right it also pays tribute to the fact that historically women have not been given nearly the same opportunity in film directing in cinematography but in film editing from mm-hmm. very early on this is a this is a role where you see women play such a major role in uh in in, in film so I, I pulled some numbers because i thought this was interesting so if you look at directing, there have been eight women nominated. Eight times women have been nominated for Best Director, and they've won three times. The first first nomination was 1976. The first win was um, Catherine Bigelow in 2009. For cinematography, there's only been three women ever nominated for cinematography, the first being 2017. For editing, there's been 77 women nominated for editing, winning 15. The earliest nomination was 1934 the earliest win is 1940 so it's like this it, it, this is the place where women have found um i mean it's also unfortunately kind of the glass ceiling i think too where they often don't get to make that that next jump but um i thought it was it was kind of great that we see uh that we see a you know this role being performed by a woman because that is actually you know, if, if Wells is right and, and and this is where films are made, women are making films, even if their names aren't there, you know, in, in the director position. And it's a good example of the Kino eye making that which is usually invisible, visible. Mm-hmm. So not only the act of editing, but as you're saying, the editor, because I mean, that, that is so significant in terms of the um, in, inequity in the system. Right. Because editing is essential to a film, but it's it's invisible. In fact, you know, the Hollywood editing style is designed to be and is designed to be invisible. It's designed you're designed not to be conscious that you're watching something that's been edited. So it's really an interesting way of including, but at the same time, kind of erasing women in terms of their role. Mm-hmm. Well, and and this movie, I mean, he does go to the point of showing her editing, but this is movie this is a movie without any invisible editing. Like it is it constantly is telling you this is being edited, this is being edited. Um Along with all of the sort of cinematic vocabulary that he and, and there's more we can probably say about this that he is putting on display. I mean, this this does feel like I'm going to show you everything I can think of to do with a camera. I'm going to put it everywhere I can think of. I'm going to do, you know, 
everything from creative camera placements to you know having a, a a cameraman hang off the side of a speeding train to get a shot everything you know two things like stop motion slow motion running it backwards doing all these things for different effect um there are also and this is where this movie is a documentary there are also themes that come out of this movie beyond just the cinematic and i found that interesting too is because when i saw that you know his kind of manifesto at the beginning i thought oh is this only going to be about the language of cinema but he's got a lot of other things that he seems interested in talking about as well as merely creating a vocabulary for um for cinema so are there themes that jump out at you as kind of central to this yeah you know so one one of the key thing, themes and this goes along with him uh making the process of filmmaking obvious to us is there's a theme of mechanization um, which he, you know, there's, there's, there's scenes of factory workers. Um, and this of course is a very, you know, or it's very oriented to the Soviet system. And the one that is particularly noticeable, and this gets back to showing women is the, is the young woman folding the cigarette boxes. Uh, and she's very happy with this work. She's really enjoying herself. And so he, he so he really wants to strike the theme of, as the Soviet Union moves to becoming a more um, industrial society, this is very good, right? These workers are enjoying what they're doing; they're contributing uh, pr productively. So he, so he wants to um, kind of advance that part of the Soviet agenda. There's also um, he sets up a contrast between uh, you, you keep seeing the shop of uh, the shot, the shot of the shop selling wine and vodka. And then that's contrasted with the the workers' clubs, which meet in actually in, in former churches. Uh, and so, the, and then you have the women shooting at the bottles of beer, right? Which then disappear. So, one of the things that he's critiquing early on, there's a scene of a guy sleeping in the street, and I think you're supposed to infer he's drunk. So there's this whole Soviet issue with with drunkenness, and ironically, the state actually sells the vodka, but he's trying to get people interested in things besides vodka, like maybe going to the movies to get lots of shots of of cinema. And he's also interested, I think, in showing the persistence of bourgeois values that need to be countered. So you get the women in the beauty shop. Uh, you get the women in the in the gym with the exercise to try to lose weight. And they're contrasted with the athletes. So and and you, I I just kind of assume they're they're workers. So so there's there's so the, he's trying to under underscore support certain values. He's trying to say here are ways in which our society isn't quite at the uh, not quite where we're trying to go, comrades. And so here's what we've got to we've got to fight against or work against. Yeah, I find that the the theme of humans and machine interesting in part because Vertov's take on this is not. Um uh one that in 2023 we tend to embrace which is vertov if we're throwing out you know early 20th century literary movements like vertov's a bit of a futurist too mm -hmm. like like he embraces the idea of like oh machines are going to make us better and in fact we should be more like machines we should maybe fuse with machines a little bit more you know uh, futurism dies out with with world war one a little bit but but i i feel like like vertov definitely has a kind of futurism in him as i read about um, his ideas so we we will see montages where we're seeing humans working humans with machines working machines working on their own and it's sort of celebrating the possibilities with this i mean you also this also feels futurist in in the the like 
the speed of life. Like you're watching these cars racing around the, the motorcycles where he has the camera mounted on that, like all the trains, all of this is sort of hurtling towards the future. I mean, I feel like, like I'm reading pre-World War one futurists like they, they would it seems like they would love the images of this um it doesn't necessarily have the the violence of futurism but it has the the hope of futurism so he really thinks about this kind of you know blending um which is interesting because he thinks that that's like a stage of human evolution right is like this kind of blending with machine which makes me think about 2001 and some of the other things we've talked about you know it's like oh he's in this conversation too he's at a point where he's seeing the 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 possibilities of this um and you know and then we've watched other things which you know more sci-fi things which say well do we really want that and i think that's i think it's interesting to see this idea actually like um uh manifest on screen well which also makes me think um sam that you could also put this film in conversation with two fairly contemporary films so uh you could put it in conversation or kind of an alternative view of machines you could put it in conversation with Fritz Lang's uh, Metropolis, uh, which just came out a couple of years before, or a couple of years after, you could put it in conversation with Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, mm-hmm. both of which take very different views of the effects of, of, mech- of mechanization. So uh, that, would, that would be fun to kind of think about how even at the time, you know, you have these different views of exactly what this means for human nature. My, my and, and on the obvious version he does with the machine is, he does a lot of comparisons between the human body and the camera. Yeah. So you know, we get a lot of the eye and then the lens of the eye. And Kubrick had to have taken the the, the lens for Hal's eye, right? Like like you, whenever it cuts back to the just a close up of the lens, it's like it might as well just be Hal looking at us because it's, <laughs> it's like like that that had to be an inspiration there. But you also get like the the famous thing with the with the eyelids and the the shutters on the window and the shutter on the camera mm-hmm. yeah, you know and yeah. it's like okay well well this is actually an extension of the human being um there's this sense of like i, I think about the because these are hand cranked cameras there is this like connection between the human the human hand or arm and the crank of the camera those are man and machine working in concert to create art and then you get the stop motion of the tripod walking around and it's like well there's the there's the legs right and the camera i mean he's imagining a camera that is mobile and can just sort of walk around itself because that would be the further extension of this what if we could even pull the the human being and their um their will away from this and let the camera be i mean which almost then starts to feel like abstract expressionism and jackson pollock right can we pull the human will away from the creation of art and let art create art itself like it feels like there is this this question being raised there like this is a very exciting movie (laughs) absolutely (laughs) um the other big theme that i saw and, and you you we've hinted at this a little bit that that um there is a kind of equality in this movie um, mm. that seems at its core. And again, I don't feel like there are things he is jumping up and saying, look at this, think about this. Um, I thought about the depiction of women in this film as pretty remarkable. And I wonder how much of that is uh, a somebody who who's a, um, you know, into the 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 socialist communist ideology thinking about equality not only in terms of uh class but also in terms of gender so you see women 
really as central to the entire life of this movie. You see them working in factories. You see them working in offices. You see his wife editing film. You see women from both life, from, from the beginning of life to death. So like there is something profoundly powerful about the birth scene. It's also very like, I did not expect that to happen. And all of a sudden that was on the screen. And part of me was put off by it and part of me was like that is really amazing and beautiful and it and and he doesn't linger on it but it's like this is and then and then you also see women mourning at the at the death too so they're sort of at both ends but the biggest depiction of this is in the sports section there is no sense that the women are like like sports is the realm of men and that women are you know they they might do this too but the first images you see of sports are the woman throwing the discus the woman doing the high jump and they look happy and healthy and athletic and then you have like the women's basketball scene and all of that stuff and it's like it's he actually has less of men in the sports scene than women which I, and he doesn't again he doesn't point it out but it's really interesting you know that 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 you know it it makes me think of um uh we're just jumping all over the place here but it makes me think of pericles in his funeral oration when he talks about like how the athenian society creates the best possible kind of person and mm. it's like he is saying like actually soviet society at its best like look at the people we make look mm. at what these women are capable of you know and and like and i i don't know like like that 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 this film has the possibility to to lean into a kind of propaganda if you want it to but like but i uh i found that stuff to be so amazing well and it's also interesting too that you know one of the few staged scenes is the woman getting up in the morning and he connects her with the cameraman both in terms of the, the day kind of starts with both of them starting their day and then when he does that thing with um kind of juxtaposing the Venetian blinds opening and closing and her opening and closing her eyes and the camera aperture opening and closing. So it's almost as though, um, even though it's a man with a camera, there's a feminine element to the camera or, or even the vision as a way. It's almost like it's there's a receptivity to it that he associates with the, with the woman. Yeah, it it makes me want to read a book about Vertov and his wife and their relationship mm -hmm. because I also think about well, she edited this. Like, is she is her hand in some like I don't know I don't know anything about uh, Vertov's ideas about gender and things like this. I'm like, is that Vertov and his ideology? Is that Vertov's wife uh, creating elements in this film? Like, I would be fascinated to know that. I would be fascinated to know what hand she gets to really play in the creation of this. Um, but I but I found that really fascinating. Yeah, we should also point out that it, it is his brother who is the cameraman. Yes. And uh, his younger, that's his one of his brothers, Mikhail, and then his younger brother, Boris, uh, actually went on to become a cinematographer in the West, um, actually Academy Award-winning cinematographer. And he uh, he was cinematographer for uh, On the Waterfront and 12 Angry Men, uh, among others. So it's quite a it's quite a, um, a cinematic family, if you will. Absolutely. Um, another thing, theme of this movie I don't know, it's a theme or an idea in this movie that i really loved was like this is also film ends up surfing as not exactly a travelogue but sort of like this this introduction to or advertisement for the industrializing soviet union i mean he finds some fascinating places where the i mean it it takes place in these you know these cities but uh when you're in the mines 
you know, for one thing, thinking about they brought two cameras down into these mines and they were lit enough where they could get this amazing footage. The one in the foundry where there's the big, I, I don't even know what you call that, but like there's just the sparks flying. I mean, that's some of the most beautiful filmmaking I've ever seen. Um, and then the the dam with the waterfall is the most otherworldly place. I've, like I've, I, I don't even understand how that water is flowing the way it is, except it's not obviously a special effect. So like he found, finds these fascinating places that um, I imagine a moviegoer, most people have not been to these places. So he's also not only introducing this, you know, the potentialities of this industrializing society, but also um, introducing, I think some of the, the uh, unique beauties found in industry too. Cause, because all of those places are not purely natural locations. They are places where humanity and nature have come together in an interesting way. Yeah, and I think it's worth saying at this point, Sam, that one of the reasons why we can appreciate those scenes is the restoration of this film is amazing. The the print the print is, is practically pristine. And I I was watching the film. My daughter walked in, and and she she was astonished. She said, "This is this is a silent film." And uh, the yeah, so the the print quality is so good, you really can appreciate those moments. It really it really works well to show the uh, the particular appeal that black and white can have. So I think, you know, those scenes that you mentioned, uh, I'll, I'll, one of the things going on, especially like in the foundry, is you also get, and, and the mine, you get wonderful shadows. And so it's kind of the black and white chiaroscuro effect. And, you're, and that really comes through nicely. I'm glad you brought up the restoration. Um, there's also another moment where that becomes really evident. And it's in the editing sequence, where when we're seeing basically the strips of film on a light table, um, I, I don't know why this is, but the, but you see the images, you know, kind of pulled back a little bit and they look grainy and dark and it's like, that doesn't look very good. And then when they cut to those things projected, mm. it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Like it's some faces. Um, mm. and it's like, and, and, and I don't know what's going on there, but, but like, there are these moments of stunning contrast where, where when, when, when you see those stills become motion, they become so much more beautiful and clean somehow. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's maybe that, that, that because this is so much about motion that some of those stills are blurry and things like this, but when you see it then projected 24 or 18 frames a second or whatever, they're cranking it at, like, it become it takes on a beauty that those stills could never have, which again speaks to there is something unique to cinema that you can't do even in photography. Yeah. Um, are there other sequences in this movie that I mean we we've we've hit on a lot of them. Um, are there others that that you want to touch on, either shots or sequences? Yeah, I mean, um, just a couple of probably pretty famous shots that we should talk about. One is um, the. Uh, the the early on the scene of the cameraman on top of the giant camera right which is which is well it's a number of things it's a double exposure uh he's playing with scale uh and it's it's also it's also interesting visual commentary it's almost as though the camera is the world and the cameraman is kind of part uh he's just a little part of that world that the camera is creating and then you get another shot like that towards the end where it's again it's a it's a perspective shot where the camera appears to loom above the entire city. Um, so I just I, I just I just love the fact that he's both combining uh, double exposure and forced perspective 
uh, at, at the same time. You mentioned the scene, but I love the the, uh, the animation of the the camera and the tripod. So uh, so it's 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 another one of those ways in which the machine and the and the the inanimate and the animate are kind of seen as um, as cousins or even as 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 equivalents. Um, and I also have to mention there's some it's a playful little sequence, but the animation of the crayfish on the mm. top of the pile of just It's almost like he's saying, look what I can do. I can animate inanimate objects and I can animate dead objects. Both of, both of those things are within my power. Yeah, I, I and then in that, the moments like that were moments where I just felt like he just, I'm going to pull every trick that I know. Um, I, I wish there would have been, and maybe there's not a way to do this well, but like that's that that's the one part where he does a trick and he doesn't, tell us so much how he does it i mean we know how he does it but um mm-hmm. you know but but maybe that's a magician holding back a little bit you know um i also like that we actually do see a magician in this mm-hmm. you know when they're at the beach you see a magician doing different tricks and you're like ah but this is what vertov is as well mm-hmm. um it's just he he's willing to show us a little bit of how pull back the curtain a little bit on that um i love the the um marriage divorce Oh yeah, you know, the, um, because again, you know, if I take him at his word, these are real things happening, and yeah. I wasn't sure. And then when they get to the death certificate, and the one woman refuses to show her face, so she oh, holds yeah. the bag, and that's when I realized, like, oh, this is that yeah. is the life caught unawares. You see, the the two people there, one of them wants nothing to do with it, and the other seems to be laughing about it, and it's like you're signing a death certificate. You know, um, uh, there's also the ambulance sequence when you have the person who has the uh, some kind of head wound. Yeah. And again, you realize like that is it, it has to be him just being at a certain moment and catching something as it's happening. I mean, that feels journalistic yeah. with it within a movie that um, although it's capturing life, it doesn't feel like journalism. It feels like at that moment, it's like, well, actually, this is we we, we are we are getting to see you know, these, the mechanisms of the ambulance and things like that spring into action or the firefighters. But then we're also seeing like a human drama play out and the same with the birth, right? You're seeing a real human drama play out. Um, And that's why if we didn't see the birth, the actual child being born, you wouldn't know that that you were really seeing a real thing happen. If you just were focusing on the, the mother's face, but to actually see the whole thing. And that seems very, kind of true to Vertov as well. Um, one last shot that I loved, and this this reflects on one of the things you mentioned. Um, there is a shot towards the end of the movie where we're seeing the big, like crowded, the, the city crowd, and you see the two um, kind of superimposed giant cameramen standing over them, filming them, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is just a, I mean, in some ways it's like a monster movie shot, like you expect that, you know, or it looks like something out of Lord of the Rings where you have like the giant um mastodons or something like this like this other creature amongst the, the these tiny little things and uh yeah and i i i just i just thought that was a was a cool shot um one last thing that i have uh this comes from the roger ebert um i don't know if you read his his review of this but it's really interesting he said that in 1929 the average shot length in a movie was 11.2 seconds mm-hmm um, man with a movie camera is 2.3 seconds. So like, I don't think we actually even understand how this must've looked to people in 1929. If you imagine this is 
four times faster cutting than you've seen than you normally see. And he compared that to in 1998, Michael Bay's Armageddon also has 2.3. So he's like, you know, Vertov's like 70 years ahead of his time in terms of thinking about how how editing works, about thinking about how long you stay with something before you move to something else. Um, uh, seeing it quantified like that is is pretty fascinating. This is one of those movies, we're talking about this with 2001, where it's like, I would love to be able to go back in time and not have seen this and watch this with the, not had seen anything I've seen before and feel like, what did this feel like to be an audience member who sat down to watch this? Like, was it dizzying? Did it make you feel sick? Did it make you feel energized like, like i don't even i don't even know what that experience would feel like because we are conditioned to watch something like this it, 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 it the comment about the speed of the editing makes me think about a, a different medium but the scene in um in amadeus when the emperor complains about mozart's uh music and he says there's too many notes uh you can't listen that fast um so in 1929 the new york times book uh film reviewer was morden paul and he said, he complained in his review that uh, he called him the producer. The producer, uh, Javigo Veritoff, does not take into consideration the fact that the human eye fixes for a certain space of time that which holds the attention. So, yeah, the film the film confused audiences at the time. It was like, I can't watch that fast. So even, so even though they were used to some montage editing from Eisenstein, this is still moving faster than an Eisenstein film. I, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, though, Sam, and that is our, our, our theme throughout our conversations, our recurring theme, and that is films that teach you how to watch films. Uh, and this is a film that very explicitly tells you at the beginning how to watch this film. But I want to say something even more than that. I, th I think that, what, you know, to me, one of the things about watching any film is it's, it's always a, it's both an immersive experience, but it's also to a certain degree a self-aware experience. And I think that's sort of what Veritoff is capturing here. Like you get immersed in these, you know, in these scenes, as you, you, you've already pointed out, there's some beautiful shots. There's a lot of things to, to um, enjoy. But Veritoff at the same time always wants you to be reminded that you are working, you're watching a constructed work of art. And in some ways, that's what we do every week with this podcast, right? We talk about what did it mean to be engaged by this film, but what does it mean to actually step back and reflect on what's happening within the film? Uh, and hopefully that deepens one's you know, appreciation. Well, it's what I loved about, you know, that it starts in this movie theater where we see this get kicked off, but then it also ends back at that movie theater and you start really getting shots of people watching the movie and people reacting to it because he is also saying like part of this part of this art is the reception of it by an audience mm -hmm. um and that you know in 1929 that audience had to be a group of people coming to a theater to watch it and it had to have i mean there there wasn't there wasn't an ability to sort of watch this on your own so it was this collective experience and it was so so he he makes us both filmmaker and audience and think about all of those things uh, as he goes, uh, as he goes through it. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Yeah. I just, I, one more thing I want to say, and that is that we came to this film from Tarkovsky's stalker. And on the one hand, you can't have more different approaches of filmmaking. Just think about the length of the shots, right? Um, very opposite film styles. You also have a, a Marxist materialist filmmaker as opposed to a Christian slash kind of more spiritual uh, filmmaker. So, but there's some interesting connections. They're both, 
how can I put this? They're both prone to manifestos. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Veritoff has some very fixed ideas about how you make films, and certainly Tarkovsky did it did as well. Um, and even though Tarkovsky kind of ended up self-exiled in the West, he was always mm-hmm. very Russian to the to the core of his being. Although his his uh, his Russianism was more much more aligned with the Orthodox Church, uh, Veritoff's much more with the Soviet Union, but still both kind of deeply deeply Russian. So uh, and and filmmakers who challenge what it means to make a film and what it means to watch a film. So I just, I, I, I kind of thought that was a, um, it, it was a nice kind of conversation to have between, between those films, uh, one in the top 10 for sight and sound, one in our top 10. Well, and I want to say, um, I'm glad you said challenge what it means to watch a film because I'm going to use a word that sounds negative, but I mean it positive for both. These are both kind of punishing experiences to watch. This is not an easy movie to watch. I thought this is the longest 67 minute movie I've ever seen mm-hmm. because it goes so fast. It's like, I can't believe how much he fits into the first 15 minutes of this movie. I, I looked at the time code and thought, well, we got to be almost done. And I realized, mm-hmm. oh, we're just getting started where mm-hmm. Tarkovsky's the opposite, which is like, I'm going to make this not, not much is going to happen. And I'm going to make this so long that mm-hmm. I want you to think about why this is long. And, and, and I feel like Vertov is saying, I want you to think about why this is fast. Yes. And I, and I think there is something to that, that uh, film reviewer at the time who said like, human eye can't take this in we're better trained in 2023 but it's still like Mm -hmm. exhausting Mm -hmm. to watch this in an in in the most thrilling way it can be exhausting like i loved this movie but i we've watched movies that are two and a half hours long on this that i feel like flew by this movie does not fly by it flies very fast but it's it's a it's a long hour to watch like i'm glad it's not two hours long i don't know that i could watch this for two hours so all right so what do you have for us for next week barrett i think that this will complete your personal top 10 sam and that is uh it's no country for old men uh from uh coen brothers 2007 masterpiece i am so excited this is one of my this is one of my favorite films uh i love the coens i love this movie so uh that's great barrett uh that's all the time that we have. Thank you so much for recommending this. I It's always fun when we watch something that you haven't seen either uh, because we got to both experience and process this together. If you haven't seen this, I mean, there's a, there's a great print of it. If you, you know, get it, I watched it on Amazon. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you don't want to spend a dime, this, there's versions of this for free on the internet um, as well. This is well worth it. This is such an interesting movie about ideas. Again, I think it pairs beautifully with contempt i would love i might actually someday watch these two together um because i think they're they're both movies that are going to stick with me in terms of people really thinking about what it means to watch films so thank you for recommending this thank you for having this conversation that is all the time that we have but we will be back next week to talk about no country for old men in the video store 